Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. We are starting our new sermon series. Our new sermon series for the month of November is called Sovereign. If you can't read it, I know that's really fancy writing and it's really hard to read it, but that actually says sovereign. Isn't that a fun word? You guys like that word? Sovereign? Go ahead, you can say it. Try it on for size. Yeah, it's just a good word. It's fun to say. Sovereignty, the sovereignty of our God is something that Christians don't believe in nearly as much as they say they do. We put it in our prayers, we sing about it in our worship songs, but it's kind of become, now number one, that word sovereign is, is kind of lost throughout time. It's not a word we use a lot anymore. But it's one of those words, especially in Christianity, that I think we, we use a lot, but we don't actually know what it means. And even more so with Christianity, when we talk about God being sovereign, we don't chase down the implications of what God's sovereignty means for us in our day-to-day life. So that's what we're going to talk about this month. We know as Christians that God is sovereign, but we don't do a very good job of asking why or what that means to us. Here's the problem, Christian. We might not do a very good job of asking why God is sovereign or what that means to us, But the world does a very good job of asking why that's important, what that means. And the problem that we have had, Christianity with culture today, is that the world doesn't stop asking questions. And so we have to be good at answering those questions, which means, look, there are some things, it's good to have blind faith. I have faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Nothing you can say is ever going to change my mind. And I'm I'm going with that. I have blind faith in that. But the Bible also tells us that we have to be able to be able to defend our position, that we have to be able to defend skepticism towards the faith. And so we've got to ask the questions, what does it mean that God is sovereign? Why is that important to us? Because the world continues to ask this question. Now, for those of you who have lost the meaning of this throughout time, sovereignty simply means ultimate power or authority and we see this it's still in use today you'll hear of you know it's it's kind of a byword but but we'll, you'll hear of nations who are sovereign nations over you know other things it gets tossed around in there a lot you don't hear it as much it with like leadership or in government as much as it used to be used but but sovereignty just means that you are ultimate authority you hold the ultimate power And while worldly people can claim these things, God is the only one who is completely safe to give that level of authority and power to. Amen? Because God's character, who he is by his very nature, 
allows him to make such a claim over our lives. And it's the big three. When you talk about character, there's big three character traits. God is omniscient, all right? That means that God is all-knowing. He knows everything. God sits outside of our timeline. I think a lot of times we think that God operates within our time frame, you know, on a timeline of events. He doesn't. He sits on top of it all. So things that happened thousands and thousands of years ago, he sees just as clearly as things that will happen thousands and thousands of years from now. He sees it all. And he sees how every event, big and small, fits together in that timeline of humanity. God is omnipotent. That means he is all-powerful. It takes God the same amount of energy to pick up a stone and throw it into a lake as it does for him to create the mountains that sit around that lake. God doesn't expend power like we expend power, right? He's all-powerful. He can do anything. And God is omnibenevolent. That's a fun one. Which means he is all good. It's all good. He's all good. Everything about him. There is nothing not good in him. And when God works, he doesn't do second best. He doesn't do second choice. He doesn't do plan B. Everything God does is good and perfect. We struggle with this, don't we? Anybody else want to raise their hand and say that, you know, passage we cling to, right? Cling not to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, right? We read through that, and it's such a great promise, but we are awful at not leaning on our own understanding, aren't we? Jeremy is awful at not leaning on his own understanding. I want to understand it, and when I can't understand it, it bothers me. But God knows all things, and God is powerful enough to execute all things. And he is good enough to only execute the things that will bring not a good result, but the best result. God is completely and perfectly under control. He rules over everyone and everything that he has created even those who refuse to recognize his lordship. Isn't that interesting? We talked about this in the Daniel series, or when we talked about the adversity series with the two books of Daniel, right? Nebuchadnezzar and King Darius, both pagan kings, no acknowledgement of God, right? Even King Artaxerxes with Nehemiah, pagan kings. They didn't recognize God at all. But God's will moved so clearly through those pagan kings, even though they don't acknowledge his lordship in their lives, right? You can fight it all you want, but God's will will be done. And here's another. This is a good news for you, Christian. I've had this conversation with many people. You are not strong enough to defeat, to deflect, to defer God's will. You can't do it. So many people will sit at a crossroads and they're like, oh, one of these is God's will and one isn't. But if I go down the wrong one, and it paralyzes us, right? I've been there. It paralyzes us. You are not strong enough to change God's will. Pick a road. Walk down it. Because God's will will 
be done. It is incredibly important to remember this when the world feels like it's spinning out of control. Anybody want to say the world feels like it's spinning out of control right now? Right? Christians running around like they're chickens with their heads cut off. The, the sky's falling. Ah, it's never been as bad as it is right now. Right? But when those moments hit, we need to lean even more into the sovereignty of God. That our God has a plan and that his plan is perfectly at work right now, even if it looks chaotic. Okay? Some of us are like, yeah. Other of us are like, yes, I don't like this. Right? We'll get there. To study God's sovereignty, we're going to look at the story of Joseph. Because, now there are a lot of stories we could have studied. Uh, the story of Esther is a really good one. If you want to talk about sovereignty, go home and read the book of Esther. Uh, God, clearly, it's, Esther is such a funny book because it doesn't actually mention God at all in the book, Right? But that so often is how God moves, because he, he moves behind the scenes, and it's very rare that we even see him, but he is always at work in what he's doing. So I love the book of Esther, but for this one, we're going to talk about Joseph, because Joseph clearly lays out in his interactions, multiple levels, different things that we can learn about God's sovereignty. And we're going to kick it off today by looking at the sovereign setup. So we are going to set up sovereignty, God's sovereignty at work in Joseph's life and in our lives, and we're going to talk about some of the benchmarks here. So, like we talked about, kings and other rulers, they used to claim sovereignty over their subjects, and some still do this. Um, but in fact, way back in the day, some kings even claimed that their rule and authority was perfect. So this happened with the Romans, right? We see Jesus butting heads against this with the Romans. But, but the Caesars thought that they were gods. They thought that their rule was perfect. Even the kings of England thought that they were divinely appointed. So any law or anything that they made, it was just as good as coming from the mouth of God. Modern skepticism says, not so fast, sweetheart, Right? Can you guys imagine if somebody came around trying to say that today, what would happen? Right? We'd crucify him, right? That's what we're really good at. And part of the reason for that is humanity has seen over and over and over again rulers who claim sovereign authority and absolutely abuse it, right? Over and over again, we see this abused. But unfortunately, what this has caused is You've heard the old saying, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That's what we've done. And church, we're just as guilty. Because as we've watched human beings do this, we've thrown this idea of sovereignty out completely, including God's sovereignty. We distrust authority so much that even when we hear about God's sovereignty, it makes us a little queasy, right? I don't want to give somebody that kind of control. Surely God's not asking for that level of authority in my life. Mm. Have you read your Bible? Because I have, and he is. But it, this distrust has kept the church from leaning in to fully understanding and implementing what it means to have a sovereign God in control of our lives in control of the life 
of the church. And more so, perhaps, it's kept Christians from embracing the hope and the peace that serving a sovereign God can bring. So, let's break free, right? Let's set up God's sovereignty so that we can walk into this in full understanding, and let's embrace the peace that that brings, because we need peace right now, right? And ladies and gentlemen, you're not going to bring peace to any situation if you don't have peace yourself, right? The world needs peace right now. And so more than anything, the world needs Christians who can bring peace into situations. Running around like the sky is falling is not going to bring peace. And as long as we are busy crying about how awful everything is, that's not going to bring peace. So we need to trust in a sovereign God and trust in his plan and bring that peace into every situation. So before we get into the three main points, I want to talk about two benchmarks that we're going to launch off of. These have everything to do with God's sovereignty, and they really launch us into what we're going to be talking about this whole month. The first is Romans 8.28. Some of you are very familiar with this. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is one of the most incredible promises in Scripture if you're paying attention. If you have your Bibles with you and this verse is not underlined in that Bible, I would highly suggest underlining it in your Bible. If you have not memorized this Bible verse, I would highly suggest you memorize this Bible verse because this is an incredible, incredible promise that God gives us. I cannot tell you how many times when my understanding has failed, I have leaned on to this promise to get me through because this holds all of the hope, all of the hope that even if I don't understand why bad things have to happen, God has a good plan. Even the worst of things, God has a good plan. Joseph echoes the same sentiment and it's where we're going to start his story. We're going to start Joseph's story at the end of Joseph's story. Genesis 50, verses 19 to 20. Joseph, speaking to his brothers who have sold him into slavery, says this, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Our problem today is that far too many people, Christians included, try to take God's place. Don't we? I'm guilty. I've done it before. We don't trust that he is sovereign. And when his ways don't make sense to us, we turn and run. Look, y'all, some people, when God's ways don't make sense to them, they turn away completely, right? This is probably one of the most frequent, we, frequent reasons I have heard for people turning away from the faith. They've got a big prayer, and God doesn't answer it the way that they want, the way that they think it should go. And so instead of saying, okay, all right, God, I'll roll with this. Let's see where this goes. They say, no, 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 no. God, I asked, and you didn't deliver. What is the purpose of serving you? And they walk away completely. 
now before Christian, you know, there's your high horse over here and some of you are starting to saddle up and say, I'm not, I'm not there. Careful, careful, careful. Because Christian, even if you don't walk away from the faith, many times what we do as Christians is when God's way doesn't make sense to us, we do what Abraham did. And we start going about our own way to fulfill God's promise, right? Abraham's first son was Isaac. Oh, wait, no, that's right. He tried to do it on his own first when God's way didn't make sense to him. And he had Ishmael. You can go study that story later if you're interested. But we, we try to do it our own way, right? So we talk about this week in and week out here at the Gospel House. There's God's way and there's man's way. Everything that is not God's way is sin. The Bible's straightforward on that, y'all. I know that's not a super popular definition in the church of sin today, but that's what it is. And lots of times when we don't understand what God's doing, I can say, all right, God, you didn't show up, so it's Jeremy time. And I start kicking down doors, and I start fighting my fights, and I start picking up my sword. When the whole time God is saying, Jeremy... If you just wait, you'd see what I have planned. But we don't do that. Our understanding fails, and so we lean on everything else to try to figure it out. In, in essence, we are taking God's seat. We're saying, God, get out of the driver's seat. I know how to get there better than you do. Ain't that silly? I mean, when we say it out loud, it sounds pretty silly, right? But that's what we do. So let's stop. Let's stop doing it. And let's learn how we can set up sovereignty in our lives. We're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at the sovereign excuse. This is the reason why I think so many people have trouble teaching sovereignty the right way. We're going to look at the sovereign blessing, and then we're going to look at the sovereign purpose. So first up, the sovereign excuse. As we said, today I do not think sovereignty gets nearly enough credit from pulpits in the church. It is not taught nearly enough that we have a God who is in ultimate control and that everything that happens is happening according to his plan, even when it seems out of control. And I think in large part, that has to do with the fact that that scares the bejeebers out of us. I think we are terrified by that prospect. Not the actual word sovereignty, but the principle of sovereignty and what that means in our lives. We don't chase the ramifications. Christians are really good at this. Actually, all, all people are really good at this. Atheists are really good at this, right? Say, God doesn't exist. I'm good. That's it. But we don't bother chasing what the ramifications of what that means. Well, if God doesn't exist, then who made this? Well, but, so if that had, like the Big Bang Theory, that's, that's okay. So if that happened once, why can't it happen again? Well, well I, I, I don't, okay, so and where did the two particles come that collided together and caused all this? Well, yeah, but I don't, right? We're terrible at chasing ramifications, right? Christian, you're just as bad, right? We're terrible at chasing. Yes, God is sovereign, so we go to the dinner table. Sovereign Lord, thank you for, but then we get on Facebook, and ah, did you see what happened? So-and-so said this and this. 
God is sovereign. He's got it under control. It's okay. But our problem is, when we teach this, God's got it under control. So when Jeremy stubs his toe on the bed, that's part of God's plan. We don't like that, right? Right? I don't like stubbing my toe. But the problem that we have with this is very quickly as we start to unravel this, and I'll show you, don't you worry, we start to realize there's some pretty sobering truths that come with this, and they're pretty heavy. And the fact of the matter is, we mistrust man more than we trust the Holy Spirit. And our mistrust of man says, hold on a second, if we actually teach this, if we actually believe this, it's going to cause some people to do some really weird stuff. And we can't have that. So we need to control this message a little more. Right? Look at the story of Joseph. In the very beginning, Mark read this, but it says this, Joseph was 17 years of age, was pasturing, pasturing, the, pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to his father. You guys know what that means in Bible language? Joseph was a tattletale, right? We tend, to, we tend to look right over this, but, you know, everybody sitting here is thinking, like, yeah, what little brother isn't a tattletale, right? I say that in hopes that my little brother won't be watching this stream, but sorry, Joel, I stand on biblical truth, and I will not change. But it doesn't end there with Joseph. It says that Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Some dream, huh? And then in verse 9, now he had still another dream and related to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now we won't go in. You heard Mark read about all the dreams and everything. You got it in the scripture reading, so we won't go through that again. But Joseph is a tattletale, and Joseph really struggles with a little thing called humility, right? Now look, we're going to sidebar here for just a minute. If God gives you a word, that's great. That's half the battle, getting the word. The other half of that battle is how do you deliver that word? How do you communicate it? Because you can speak 100% what God has told you and still be wrong, right? The right word at the wrong time, is the wrong word. The right word to the wrong person is still the wrong word. See how difficult this following God is? It's almost like we need him living inside of us, telling us what to do every moment of every day so that we don't miss it. Oh, wait, that's the gospel. So it's not just about your word or your dream or the prophecy. It's about the timing and delivery of all of this. And it all has to be right. And Joseph misses so badly because he gives this word to his brothers. Now look, we can't, the Bible doesn't tell us where Joseph went wrong, but we know he went wrong because, number one, the Bible tells us that we are to walk in humility, right? Over and over and over again, pride is the enemy of God. 
And so when Joseph comes in and tells these dreams to his brothers, there's no air of humility in it, is there? And even his father rebukes him at one point and says, Joseph, are you, I mean, are you, are you really going to come here and tell us these things? Look, even if they were true, let's season it a little bit so that we're not just <laughs> blasting our brothers in the face with all of this. But he misses it. He misses the mark. And what does it mean in Christianity when we miss the mark? Right? It's the Jeopardy question, right? Missing the mark in Christianity. Doo -doo -doo. What is sin, Alex? Correct. Right? That's what sin is. Sin is missing the mark. So Joseph misses the mark. So if you're paying attention, Joseph is a prideful, arrogant tattletale. That gets him sold into slavery. That leads him to Egypt. That leads him to interpret Pharaoh's dream, which leads him to become second in command, which leads him to warn all of Egypt and the surrounding areas that a severe famine is coming and to save countless lives, all of which God tells, or Joseph tells us was God's plan from the beginning. And that's where the record scratches, right? So wait a minute. Pastor, you're telling me this all started with Joseph sinning. Yes. So it was God's plan for Joseph to lack all humility. Something that we are commanded over and over again in Scripture to walk in, humility, to fail in something that God has commanded us, to sin, and that was God's plan? Can you see how quickly this makes us uncomfortable? Right? So sin is part of God's plan? Right, because listen, y'all, we know this as Christians. God does not do plan B. It's not like, oh, Jeremy goofed, I gotta move on to plan B. If that were the case, we'd be on plan like quadruple Z, because Jeremy goofs a lot. But God doesn't do plan Bs. He has plan A, and that's what he does every time. He knows how it's going to go. But see, our problem is we mistrust man, right? Hold on. If we teach this at the gospel house, we're just going to have a bunch of people running around sinning all they want, and there's not going to be any reason for them to turn and repent, right? Because if sin's part of God's plan, <laughs> let's have at it, right? But guys, if you're motivated by that, like if that's your motivation in obeying God, I hate to break it to you, but you missed the entire point of the gospel. If your motivation is so that you can be part of God's plan A, you missed it completely. This is what the church is so afraid of when we lean in to teach God's sovereignty. Is that people will do whatever they want. Ladies and gentlemen, this isn't new though. Paul addresses the exact same thing in Romans 6. Or Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? What Paul calls grace applies to sovereignty as well. God's grace redeems our sin. So yes, even your sin can be worked together for good.
but that does not make our sin good. Right? God is good. God's plan is good. His will is good. His purpose is good. And in his goodness and grace, he masterfully weaves even the worst about us into his perfect plan. But in no way does that mean that we should camp out in our sin. In no way is that a call to keep from repenting and to stay in unrighteousness. If anything, it's even more reason to turn to him and to turn away from our sin. Because our loving Father has turned what the enemy meant for evil into his ultimate good, we should rejoice and wholeheartedly turn from sin. It's that love motivation, right? Talk about 1 John 4.19 all the time. We love because he first loved us, right? It's not he loves us because we loved him. He loved us first. He called us first. He had a plan and a purpose for us first. That is our motivation to give him everything we have. To love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sovereignty is not an excuse to sin. Sovereignty is an assurance. It's an assurance that God is in complete control. An assurance that God can turn the worst of circumstances and work them out for good. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Without question, when you look at what God did through the cross, the most horrific event of human history, there is no question that God can turn anything to good. I really love this quote from revivalist preacher George Whitfield. The old ones always said it best. But he says this, I have often sat down with wonder and delight and admired how God has made the very schemes which his enemies contrived in order to hinder become the most effectual means to propagate the gospel. What the heck does that mean, right? The very thing that the enemy has set forth to say, I'm going to stop this gospel from being preached. I'm going to, I'm, the, the, the devil himself says, this is my plan. This is going to stop the gospel. Those very things, God flips on their head. And they become the things that spread the gospel like wildfire, more so than anything else. Look at what persecution has done to the church. I dare you. <laughs> Go home and study it. Look through the church's history. Every time anyone has come out and said, we're going to stop this gospel from being preached, we're going to kill anybody who preaches the gospel, it works. Nope, never. It always has the exact opposite effect. It spreads like wildfire. In fact, I would suggest American church, we should be far more worried about being comfortable than we should about being persecuted. Because if you study church history, the comfortable church is a dead church. The persecuted church is a church that's alive and thriving. I'm not going to go so far as to say we should start praying for persecution. But a little kick in the pants doesn't always hurt, right? Sovereignty is in no way an excuse to serve God less. If anything, it's an excuse to serve him more, a reason to serve him more. 
And when we lean into that, when we lean into this sovereignty, we find the sovereign blessing. Now, we've got to be very careful here. We talked about this through the adversity sermon series. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. But we as a church need to redefine what we call blessing. Because we call a lot of things blessing that the Bible does not call blessing. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount kind of flips that upside down, right? When he talks about blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the, right? There's not a single thing in that sermon that we read and think, yep, that goes along with Western theology, right? Because it's all bad stuff. You read that and you're like, Jesus, I think you missed what blessing actually is. Because, but Jesus doesn't miss it, right? We do. And so we've got to redefine what we call blessing. Christian, what is your greatest blessing? God. God himself. That's it. And so when we talk about the sovereignty of blessing, it's that you get more God. You are made to look more like Jesus. And that's the blessing in God's sovereign plan. Again, look at Joseph. It says, So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. They took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. As they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on the way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it to us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up, lifted Joseph out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. I know that this is what every brother or sister dreams about, right? <laughs> Selling your brother into slavery. But come on, like to actually do it, that's pretty messed up, right? None of us would ever actually follow through on that, I hope. I'm not talking to a bunch of sociopaths here who would actually sell their brothers. But listen, I think this is one of the biggest reasons why we miss Joseph's sins, right? We read the story of Joseph and, you know, we get to, to the end of the, even just this chapter. And it's like, oh, poor Joseph. He's He's the hero. He has nothing flawed, flawed in him. He's, you know, a hero. Eh, right? We, we miss. We glaze right over all the problems that Joseph had. But part of that is, is because the crime in no way fits the punishment. Right? It's not like, listen, I've struggled with arrogance. I, I hope I don't get sold into slavery because of it. Like, it doesn't seem like that. those two things follow, right? And so, since the crime doesn't fit the punishment, we kind of give Joseph a free pass on some of the stuff that wasn't so clean in his background. But there is no denying it. This would be awful, right? We're so good at putting ourselves in the position of the hero until that hero starts to suffer, and then we step out real quick. This would be terrible, Right? I mean, it's one thing to get sold into slavery, but to get sold into slavery by your brothers, your own family, so that you never get to see the rest of your family ever again, that would be absolutely awful, which makes one sit back and say, Pastor Jeremy, you put this in the blessing section, remember? 
That's not a typo. It's intentional. Because God's greatest blessings, what did we talk about in the adversity sermon series? God's greatest blessings are any road it takes to look more like him. Anything that it takes. That is a bold prayer to pray. That is a prayer that you got to take the piece of wood and bite down on it to pray that thing. Because y'all, it's going to hurt, right? For me to say, Jesus, Holy Spirit, do whatever it takes to make me look more like you. I've read my Bible, y'all. That's not Solomon sitting in his temple eating feasts every day and like Scrooge McDuck swimming in his gold coins. That's not going to make me look more like Jesus. That's not how any of the characters in the Bible look more like Jesus. They walk through some stuff. And when I invite that prayer and say, God, do whatever it takes to make me look more like you, Oh boy, you're opening that door. But it is a door of blessing. We are so bad at this, aren't we? The world today is so bad at suffering. We've been talking about that a lot, but we are. And the church today is so bad at suffering. We don't know how to do it. I just I did a, a funeral this, this past week, and somebody came up to me after the funeral and said, thank you. We go to church all the time and we hear this Philippians, you know, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but thank you for letting me know that it's okay to struggle, that I'm not broken when I walk through hard things. But that's what life is, right? And we wonder why so many people are running away from the church because the church is sitting here preaching, blessings galore, pressed down, shaken, overflowing, right? That's what blessing is. Instead of teaching, blessing is whatever it takes to become more like Jesus. The hard stuff, the terrible stuff, being sold into slavery by your brothers. Nobody's going to look at that and say, hey, sign me up, right? But that's where the blessing is. But guys, right now the world is trying to suffer well without God, and it's absolutely impossible. That's where the blessing with this sovereignty is. Because Christian, you are the only one who can say to yourself and to anyone else that what I am walking right now has a purpose. That what I am walking right now is meaningful. And that there is something on the other end of it. The world can't say that. And it keeps trying to. So, you know, we have, we have these hijacking of ideologies where you go to a funeral of you know somebody who's a known atheist oh he's in a better place now not according to your faith right but we they tell themselves these things because ultimately y'all everybody wants what we have but the church won't live like they have it we have a hope beyond the clouds a hope that's anchored within the veil, and we won't grab onto it. Because, in large part, I think we know, Christian, grabbing hold of that hope means I have to let go of a lot of things on this earth. And that's hard. I'm not going to pretend that that's easy. 
It's very hard. But look at the world around you. They need you. They need this message, this Jesus, that there is sovereignty behind everything that's going on right now. That there is blessing when you lean into that sovereignty. And it's not blessing that everything's going to get better magically right away. It's blessing that you are going to be refined through the fire and look more like Jesus. See, here is the rub. You guys have heard this saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't. And with God's sovereignty, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. If God is sovereign, if God is in complete control, then guess who is not? Me. Right? I have to let that control go. And we really don't like it. So we would rather hold on to this false idea that we have control in our own lives instead of surrendering to his perfect control. Some of you may be familiar with the author Elizabeth Elliot. She and her husband were missionaries in Ecuador uh, where her husband Jim was killed by the very tribe that he went to minister to. They got in their canoe, sailed out to preach the gospel of these people, and were killed immediately. Elizabeth Elliot ministered to that tribe that killed her husband for two years after her husband's death. Isn't that incredible? For two years after that. In doing so, she became a spokesperson, probably not voluntarily, for Christ and how to suffer well so that Christ is glorified. She says this, Can God be trusted to manage our lives better than we can manage them. I'm convinced that there is nothing that can happen to me in this life which is not precisely designed by a sovereign Lord to give me the opportunity to learn to know him more. God will not protect you from anything that will make you look more like Jesus. That hurts, doesn't it? Which brings us to the sovereign purpose. These two points, you know, it's a sermon, so it's got to be three points. I probably could have bled two and three together to make it just two points today, but then you guys would feel like you're getting cheated. So we got to tread carefully. If the sovereign blessing is that God can use anything to make us look more like Jesus, then what's God's purpose? To make us look more like Jesus, right? If we face the wrong storm, remember? If we face the wrong storm, we miss this. And church, we miss this a lot. I know because I have been told. In Joseph, we see this. It says, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So just in case you've missed it along the lines, Joseph's pride gets him sold. His slavery gets him to Egypt. And in Egypt, he is sold to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. From there, we jump into the next chapter. Actually, it skips a couple chapters because there's other things that don't have to do with Joseph. A couple chapters later, in Genesis 39, it says this. Now his master saw that the Lord was with Joseph and how the Lord caused 
all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. Now notice what we talk about in the adversity sermon series. You guys remember? Yes, Joseph was sold into slavery. That was a horrible thing. But who never left his side? God was with him every step of the way. Joseph was never asked to face the storm alone. And you are never asked to face the storm alone. Joseph was sold into slavery, but God was with him. The Lord was with him. It continues in verse 5. It came about that from time... From the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. Now stop me if you've heard this one before. When God closes one door, he opens an even better one. Anybody? Huh? Has anybody been told that? By a well-meaning Christian, brother or sister in Christ, right? Well-meaning, but guys, that's really great until it doesn't happen, right? God opens one door, there's going to be another door of opportunity. And look, for some of us, yes, blossoms, and oh my goodness, you're right, it did. I got paid three times as much at this job as I did in this job, but for others, it doesn't happen that way. When God closes a door, the next door that opens isn't anything to write home about. It's a road marked with pain and suffering. But we do this in today's Christianity. Right? This is the advice we offer. We'll suffer through worldly problems and, and you're going to get a promotion and you're gonna, it's going to come all, all come back to you and you're going to get twice as much as you lost. That's not actually the promise in Scripture, though. And it is such a cheap reduction of what God's plan actually is. Because God's plan, his purpose, is to make you look more like his son. To give you more of himself so that you can be with him forever. Eternity is God's goal. Not the worldly, but so many of us Suffer so we can get things. Suffer so we can get promotions. And then it's no surprise that when that doesn't happen, we're absolutely crushed. But God's plan is pur and purpose is to give you all of his riches, which are all found in him, in eternity. By any road, at any cost, right? Right? I have heard my fair share of modern Christian advice when it comes to what God's sovereignty is. And, listen to this. I have the distinct blessing of watching all of that advice fail. That's how I've been blessed. Because every time someone has told me a better door is going to open, it hasn't. And that's been a blessing. Because it has taught me that I don't suffer 
for a better door. I suffer for him and to be made more like him. I'll just tell you one of my stories. When I was in the education field, I taught at Bowling Green High School. And when I was teaching there, I was the building sub. It was a pretty good job. I, sh I showed up every day. Uh, if there was a job for me to do to sub, I went in and I subbed. If there wasn't, I got to sit around and read books. That was kind of cool. So it was really good. Uh, problem is it paid about half of a teacher's salary. So if you know what a teacher's salary is, <laughs> you can point and laugh at me now. Because um, it wasn't great. But I did that. That was what I did. I did that for three years, something like that. So I worked this job for three years. Coached football. I loved it. It was great. Had a great community there at Bowling Green High School. Got along well with all of the teachers. It was wonderful. The problem was the closest teacher to retirement was like five or six years out. And so there was this rough, like, what are we going to do here? Because I can't do this forever. Like, our family can't afford for me to do this forever. Like, what do we do? And then out of nowhere, a teacher's family relocated and a job opened up. It was like, dude, no way. And so I, at that time, I was reading through Mark Batterson's The Circle Maker. So, of course, I did what anybody reading through The Circle Maker would do, and I went to the high school, and I marched circles around that high school around and around and around. People probably thought I was like profiling the high school to bomb it or something, but that's what I did. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, and we felt so confident God has gone before us. He opened this job where there was no job. Like, this is mine. Like, he, this, he opened this door for me. So went through the interview, made it to the last round of the interviews. Everything went great. I knew everybody in the interview room anyway, so I knew it was going to go great. I didn't get the job. It was like, what? Are you kidding me? And it's one of those things, you know, like it's bad that I didn't get the job. It's like to the administration. It's like, what are you guys doing? But even more so, it's like, God, what are you doing? I pulled my end. I, I did all the things I was supposed to do. Like, what, what are you doing? And I got the emails. And I got the cards. God will close this one door. He's going to open another one. and You'll make twice as much. False. That next year I went and worked construction with my friend Tim. I don't know if any of you have ever spent an elongated time in the winter on the shores of Lake Erie. But that was where our job was. Gem Beach, was it Gem Beach? Gem Beach. And so we worked that winter on the shores of Lake Erie, freezing our tails off. Talk about a better door. And then after that, I got a teaching job at Lakota High School. I taught my grade level by myself. I was completely isolated. It was a long drive every single day there and back. They, they had some rule where, like, my first year of teaching, I wasn't allowed to coach anything. I wasn't allowed to do extracurriculars. I was miserable. It was awful. And then I was offered a job in ministry as a worship leader, actually as an assistant worship leader, assistant to the worship leader. Just wanted to clarify. <laughs> so I was offered that position, and honestly, y'all, if my life didn't suck so much out at Lakota, <laughs> maybe I wouldn't have taken it, but I did take it, and that led me to become a worship pastor, and that led me to become a founding pastor. I don't know what I am now, but here I am, right? But listen, y'all, 
if I spent that entire time, even now, I'd be making way more money teaching than I am right now, right? And that's not, that doesn't mean like, hey, we better slide Jeremy a couple extra bucks in the tide this month. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, I would have completely missed it if I went through this, all of this looking for the better door, right? And Christian, I think we miss it sometimes because we spend all of our time looking for the better door. Look, ministry has been hard. It's been really hard on me, on my family. It's hard. But guys, I have become more like Jesus through every hard thing that I have done. So much so I've told some of you this, but this is what I've started praying for my kids. I have not prayed that God blesses them with every blessing, worldly blessing. I have not prayed that they have the easiest life because I look at my life and it is the like teeth gritting hard stuff that has made me look more like Jesus. So I have prayed, God, whatever it takes, get my kids to heaven. Whatever it takes, it's out of my control, it's in your control. Whatever it takes, get them to heaven. That's the best prayer that you could pray for yourself, for your kids, for your friends, for whoever it is, because that is the path of blessing. God's will is not centered on the things of this world. We act like it is, but it's not. God's will is centered on eternity with him. And everything God does is pointing us to that. That's how all of our stories end. Every single one. The ultimate good of Romans 8.28 is in eternity with him. The question is, will you accept his invitation so that he can work all things together for your good? That promise, it's a promise with strings attached to it, right? We get this, oh, God doesn't do strings. He does in this one, Right? Because God will work all things together for good for those who love him. Look, y'all, this is a common misteaching in the church today. We want to be so seeker-inclusive and everything that, you know, it's for everybody. It is for everybody. But God will not work it for good if you don't love him. That's what the promise says. And I'm sorry if that offends. But you can either accept the invitation or you can decide that you know how to do it better than God. Will you choose to trust that a perfect, sovereign God is able to direct your life better than you can? Let's lean into the full sovereignty of God and everything that that implies. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you are pointing to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.